Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 29 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. And Bobby, I lost my Game of Thrones bet. Oh, but it's, you know, it's bad for us to immediately start talking Game of Thrones I'm now. Say, I'm just saying I lost the bet. I, well, well, you know, folks would have to think really seriously about what the bet was. All right, if, you're, if you're already reaching to pause this because you haven't watched the third episode. Don't worry. No, the, no, yeah. no. Uh, uh, I, I, it was a very limited spoiler. All right. We will spoil nothing. Stay tuned till the end of the show when we start uh, getting really frivolous. Really some stuff. Right. Bob, Bobby, it's August? It is August 1st. It is Tuesday afternoon, August 1st, and uh, the dog days of summer are here. Classes are looming in the fall, Steve. Uh, what national security-related stuff do you have on the uh, schedule for fall or spring this year? Uh, so in the fall, I'm teaching first-year constitutional law, which is always a bit of a national security class. Yep, I think I'm teaching right down the hall at the exact same time. I think we have students in the same section, so we'll get to compare some compare some notes. That's right. Um, and I'm teaching a seminar on military justice and jurisdiction, a topic near and dear to my heart. That'll be great. Uh, and, uh, and then spring fed courts, which, you know, is not really a national security topic. But well, but these days, and, these and days. according to the things we're going to talk about in this episode, I guess it is. Um, I've got con law like you do, and then in the fall... I've got one of our cybersecurity foundation courses, the one that's going to focus on um, mapping out the government, private sector players, the the rules of the road, and some of the larger considerations. So the non-technical course. This is and this is with a friend of the pod, Matt Tate. Well, Matt's got a companion course. He's going to do a mirror image course that's entirely tech focused that doesn't assume any institutional or legal knowledge. I'm doing the reverse. Right. And then in the spring, we're going to jointly teach a uh, basically a colloquium course. We're going to bring people into town to talk about cutting edge issues. Very cool. And I should say, you know, we're 29 episodes in, and Matt Tate is to date the only guest of the pod. That's true. That's true. You know, we don't really do the the guest speaker segment, but I, I have a feeling we'll have our opportunities. Especially this fall, so we've got some people coming through. No doubt about it. So uh, we, we thought we'd sort of preview quickly what we're going to talk about today. Obviously, we have some stuff to say about Game of Thrones at the end, but you know, this is actually the National Security Law Podcast, <laughs> not the Westerosi Security Podcast. This is true. It's not just some poorly titled, well, it is poorly titled, but yeah. not poorly titled in that, in that way. respect. Yeah. Um, so, so Bobby, there's some interesting stuff to talk about. Tomorrow, the DC Circuit's going to hear oral argument on a military commission appeal, actually the the first time the D.C. Circuit is handling any aspect of the 9-11 trial. You know, we don't get a lot of trials on the merits out of Guantanamo, but we sure get lots of appellate action. Uh, it's more and more by the by the week, it seems. So, yeah, so we're going to talk a bit about both the specific issue the D.C. Circuit's going to be hearing tomorrow, and, and I think there's some interesting stuff to say about the more general role the D.C. Circuit's been playing in trying to curate this pre-trial litigation vis-a-vis the commissions. Okay, so we're going to get very Fed courtsy in that discussion. Me? Fed courtsy? I know. Never. <laughs> um, that on, isn't that on your license plate? <laughs> Fed courtsy. So one of my students did once suggest that I should get a personalized license plate that said, habeas. Um, <laughs> I, I resisted the temptation. I can picture it now, you know, people, for whatever reason, you can never get the actual spelling you want. So it's going to be like H-E-Y, you know, B-E-U-S, or I don't know how many. Or, or H-A-B-E-A dollar sign. <laughs> <laughs> although although that would be a very misleading point. Yeah, that would confuse the heck out of people. There's no money in habeas. I was going to say, I don't know what dollar sign that would uh, be. All right, so after we talk about the military commissions and everyone's favorite topic, mandamus, we're going to pivot, Bobby, to some interesting stuff with, with uh, the law of armed conflict and the workshop you just came back from. You were in somewhere way cooler, both literally and metaphorically, really, than I was. Really only metaphorically. So Bobby, it, was a, it felt like 112 here on Sunday. It got up in the high 90s 112. in Florence. 112. Yeah, 112 is pretty brutal. But everything here is air conditioned. We're, we're, we're designed for it over here in Texas. In, in Italy, not so much. <laughs> it, was, it was toasty. I Poor will, Bobby. I Bo- know. Bobby had to sweat his way across Florence. Everybody pull out your violins. <laughs> I had a good time, but more importantly, I learned a lot and so I'm going to, it was a Chatham House rule event, so I can't report on what was actually said, and I'm not going to talk about who was there, but I shame. will. <laughs> what is, oh, the shame bell. Steve is waving his shame bell app at me. I really am. I'm, I'm going to have to figure out some good thing to counter that, so yeah. be prepared. I'll be ready. Um, I will be able to give some broad outlines of the types of topics we were talking about. And what I want to do is flag for the audience, uh, which no doubt includes people who, who know this stuff very well, but also people who don't closely follow developments in the, the laws of war and the law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law, if you prefer. 
talk about some of the things that were some of the cutting edge issues and what the stakes in those issues were. And then uh, we'll pivot back and talk about some more domestic matters. So, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we haven't really had a good, juicy headlines-driven story in the last couple of weeks. But obviously, there's been a fair amount of turnover, oh, I don't know, since Friday um, in the White House. (laughs) And, you know, we're a national security law podcast. We are not a, you know, political intrigue It's not a gab fest about politics. No, but, you know, there's the the move whole, you know, without— Without regard to Anthony Scaramucci, so we can finally stop making bad Bohemian Rhapsody jokes. Oh yeah, those are those are a bit overdone at this um, point. You know, the the move of John Kelly from the Home, Department of Homeland Security, the White House Chief of Staff, has at least in some circles reinvigorated this discussion of just how militarized President Trump's cabinet and inner circle is. You know, I think it might be interesting to spend a few minutes talking about what the law actually says about how what kind of jobs military officers can hold in this context. It's actually a little more interesting than people might think. And and of interest to me, it actually dovetails quite nicely with the cases I'm actually working on right now, uh, uh, arising out of the court-martial system, challenging military judges serving on both the court-martial and military commission systems. They're actually, Bobby, all of a piece. That's very cool. I mean, it's clearly, there's clearly a civil military relations or civil relations uh, topic here. And I think and there's, the va- more, and there's more law than I think people often realize there is. Well, that's just it. I think the value we add, I mean, if you want to learn about civil military relations, talk to Peter Fever at Duke. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want some insight into what little the law may have to say on this, yep. it's not nothing, um, then here we are to help. And I'll just say really quickly before I forget, and also read Diane Mazur's book, Toward a More Perfect Military, a really cool exposition of some of the interesting topics these days. Yeah, it's definitely become a, a, of the moment, that's for sure. All right, so why don't we pivot back? Well, and then, and then obviously our triviality will be Game of Thrones. Yep. Although I think we should talk about uh, some major league trades there right at the deadline. So here's the problem with talking about major league trades. <sighs> the <Just> Mets <laughs> traded good people for nobodies. For nothing. Oh, but for, you know, basically nothing. what in an NBA context we'd say cap room, right? You're, you're yeah. manage, managing the budgets. And the Yankees actually made some moves that I think were really smart. And so I'm facing the prospect of a of a of a Yankees like Nationals or Yankees Dodgers World Series and, and I just I just don't like that prospect. You've forgotten the Astros, my friend. Yes, I have. That's <laughs> by design. Don't sleep on the Astros. Who did the Astros pick up at the trading deadline? Francisco Liriano. <laughs> Who did the Astros pick up at the trading deadline? <laughs> if they had just thought to get the 2012 version. Oh, right. Let's look back That time. would have been fantastic. Although apparently on Game of Thrones, they figured out how to do time travel because everyone's moving around faster than makes any sense. Well, it's not like an episode of 24 where they're trying to actually, you know, <laughs> kind of keep, keep, keep the clock. All right. So so if you're if you're keeping up with our wild jumps from topic to topic, let, let's jump into topic number one for... Instill discipline like John Kelly's in the office. Talk about topic number one, Steve. Now, go. Okay. So at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time tomorrow morning, that's Wednesday, August 2nd, depending upon... Well, no, not depending upon when you're... Uh, no matter when you listen to this episode, <laughs> it will be Wednesday, August 2nd. Um, uh, a three-judge uh, panel of the D.C. Circuit. And Bobby, let, let's just say who the judges are, because it's actually an interesting panel. Judges Rogers, Tatel, and Griffith. Uh-huh. Um, not exactly the most hostile to a def- criminal defendant panel you could have in the D.C. Circuit. They got a good draw from their perspective. Is hearing a, a very unusual August argument for the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit actually tends to follow the Supreme Court's model largely of not hearing argument over the summer. Um, and the argument is in a case captioned in Ray Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, ah. it's, it's a mandamus petition in the 9-11 case. Uh, the specific question is whether... Uh, Judge Scott Silliman, someone you and I both know well and, and like a great yeah, deal. Really one, of the, one of the godfathers of our field. Yep. Um, who is one of the civilian judges on the Court of Military Commission Review. That's the intermediate appeals court between the military commissions and the D.C. Circuit. Um, the question is whether Judge Silliman should have recused from hearing the government's interlocutory appeal in the 9-11 case, which the government won, by the way. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. On the ground that statements he made prior to being named to the CMCR, suggested both actual bias against the 9-11 defendants and the appearance of bias um, that he might bring with him to, the, to, to, to participate in an appeal. It's actually, it's a pretty classic, you know, judicial recusal right. case. Right, But with the sort of unusual baggage of a petition for a writ of mandamus from the CMCR to the DC Circuit. Well, you know, we're, we're used to, in other contexts, seeing these sorts of things come up where, say, this justice or that federal judge has given, you know, a keynote speech where they talked about some matter, and then it turns out to be before the court, and people make motions to recuse. We don't get this much. Uh, we haven't had cases like that. 
touching on core national security law issues like the trial of the 9-11 conspirators. So that's actually, you know, it does bring into our corner of the universe a really, really important recurring issue. Um, so w- what's at stake here? Well, so, I mean, the stakes are actually not that high. I mean, I think one of the key points here is even if the petitioners here, the 9-11 defendants, are able to convince the D.C. Circuit that not only should Judge Sullivan have recused, but that it was so obvious that a writ of mandamus is the appropriate remedy. Um, all that means is that you get a new panel, right? And that the the CMCR's original decision uh, granting the government's appeal and reinstating two of the charges yeah. in the 9-11 case gets wiped off the books. The same issue goes to a new panel of the CMCR. Which very well might come out the same way. Uh, not just very well might, almost surely will, right. right, come out the same way. So so this is actually not, you know, the 9-11 trial is not exactly hanging in the balance here. Well, but okay, but 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 Scott's role Scott's, is. Yeah, because if, if he's knocked out for this, this it has much broader Oh, no, oh, presumably, right. Presumably, if the D.C. Circuit says, yes, Judge Silliman should have recused from this appeal, then Judge Silliman is out from all of the 9-11 cases. That's not all the work of the CMCR, right? I mean, it has Nashiri. It will presumably sure. eventually have work to do in the Hadi al-Iraqi case. But it's, you know, it would, it, it would be a it would be a big deal for Judge Silliman, no doubt. I just I just want to be, be clear, this is not exactly a make or break moment for the 9-11. Oh, exactly. Like, the, their ultimate fate is not going to be altered by this, I think. Um, so lay some knowledge on us, Steve, about mandamus in general. We're going to have a lot of listeners. The, the Our lawyer listeners and law student listeners um, are already reaching for the booze. <laughs> well, I think all of our listeners do that or they wouldn't be our listeners. Indeed. God bless y'all. Um, no, it, there's there's some degree of familiarity, it, yeah. at least if only by dint of Marbury versus Madison, everybody during con law <laughs> or at some point in law school picks Why up. Why didn't Thomas Marshall deliver the writ of Van Davis to, you know, William Marbury? <laughs> did, did you say Thomas Marshall? Yeah, his, his brother. Oh, is that right? Unpack that for me. Oh, sorry. Okay, so, so I think it's Thomas. I might have the name wrong. But John Marshall, right, spent a month as both the Secretary right. of State and the Chief Justice of the United States. And he had States. a brother working with him? A brother, this I did not His know. brother was his clerk. <laughs> um, or maybe it was his son. Maybe it was his, actually right. might have been but, his okay, son. Okay, so a relative. A relative. Someone's going to, you know, we're going to get irate tweets about this. Oh, no. But so um, Marbury versus Madison, the most famous Supreme Court decision, you know, I think, right? Yeah, it's ever, certainly up there. In um, the top tier. Fountainhead, right? Um, which establishes the power of judicial review, or at least solidifies it. Um, the actual facts of Marbury are that um, William Marbury was appointed at the very last minute of the Adams administration a justice of the peace in Washington, D.C. One of the midnight judges. One of the midnight judges. Um, and, you know, Marshall was up so late. Marshall and Adams were up so late the night before Jefferson's inauguration signing commissions that in the rush, some of the commissions didn't get delivered and were actually sitting on new Secretary of State James Madison's desk when he walked in on March 4th, 1801. Indeed. And in fact, you know, I think it's fair to say that really no school would be teaching mandamus as a topic and introducing what the writ was and how it functions during the first year, or maybe not at any point except in the context of the Fed courts class, but for its key role in that case. So So everybody does learn about it. But so here's the thing. So in that context, right, the writ of mandamus was actually an original writ directed to the Secretary of State. To, deli- to perform a non-discretionary duty to deliver the commission. In this con, I mean, this is this is actually getting into the weeds, but it's important weeds. What we're talking about in the context of the, of, of the case that's being heard tomorrow is mandamus as an appellate tool. Right, right? which is different than, the, different. I think, what, what everyone learns in law school is that mandamus is a tool to make executive branch officials do non-discretionary duties that, even though it's non-discretionary, for whatever reason, they're not doing. Right, so deliver the bloody commission. It's a, it's a do your do your job. Do your job. Um, and in, and it, it's sort of doing the same thing in the context of, of cases like this, but instead of it being directed to executive branch officers, it's directed from a higher court to a lower court. Indeed, mandamus is often a means of getting a higher court to hear an appeal that it otherwise doesn't have jurisdiction yeah. to hear. So it's a loophole that gets around yes. the inability to raise certain issues on interlocutory appeal. That is to say, appeal before the proceeding right. at we hand don't, has we don't, completed. We, don't, we generally don't like interlocutory appeals. And mandamus is basically this carve-out for circumstances where the issue is sufficiently important, where waiting for a post-final judgment appeal would be insufficient, um, and where the the applicant's right to relief is clear and indisputable. Okay, so you just went right to the heart of the matter. There has to be, when, as long as mandamus can work this way, there's got to be a doctrinal test for when the conditions are adequate. And it needs to be something other than, hey, I think my trial judge has it wrong. Right. So, right, it's uh, more than de novo. It's not just like, did the, did the trial court err? Right. It's, it's, 
is there some sufficiently egregious error that justifies this unusual resort to a, a so-called extraordinary writ? Now, are the are the courts around the country, are the circuits generally all on the same page about what the conditions are that authorize this? So this is where, so this, Bobby, is, is, is where the military commission cases actually get really interesting. Um, yes, except for the D.C. Circuit. Ah. Right? Now, there are some differences at the margins, but for the most part, the test I just articulated is the test that every circuit court in the country follows when it's time to figure out whether a writ of mandamus should issue to a court under its supervisory authority. Here's what the D.C. Circuit has done, though. The D.C. Circuit has taken the question of whether your right to relief is, quote, clear and indisputable, and turned that into a search for clearly established law. That is to say, is there some precedent that binds us, which is to say a prior D.C. Circuit decision or a Supreme Court decision that makes clear that what the lower court did was error? Um, and I think this is an important but subtle but important distinction, right? A lower court can make a clear error without it being precedented, right? Without right. clear precedent for that being a no, clear it's error. It's easy to imagine that if we drew a circle on the board and said, look, this is the universe of all types of clear error, you would have a subset of that circle, maybe even a small subset, where some higher authorities already had the occasion to address that type yep, of clear error totally. and has pointed out. And the rest of it is all cases of first impression that nonetheless are clear errors. Right. And so, and so what the D.C. Circuit has said is no, right? That, in fact, there's no such circle, right? Yeah. That, that to get mandamus, at least in the military commission context, and there are a couple of cases in the non-military commission context, but this is mostly been issue in the military commissions, to get mandamus, any novel question. Um, is not going to work, right? If you have a novel question, no mandamus for you. But they're all novel in this context, well, this, or at least so, most of them So are. herein lies the rub, right? Most of the mandamus questions, the, the, the appeal that's being heard tomorrow is the fourth. Um, I, I, yeah, it's the fourth sort of post-2009 mandamus qua interlocutory appeal okay. in a Guantanamo military commission case. And in three of those four cases, the question has not been about, like, the legal issues being tried by the commission. It's been some quirky structural question about the CMCR. Bobby, the CMCR is brand new. Right. There can't be in, – in that context, there just can't be mandamus. Um, so, right. So, so I wrote a post for Lawfare on Monday that basically said this is nuts, um, right, that, that the DC, part of the problem in these cases is that the D.C. Circuit is holding itself to way too high a standard. And so you have – perfectly interesting, perhaps, we don't even know, meritorious claims that are being thrown out on, simply on the ground that they're novel. By that logic, mandamus is never going to be available here. This is all going to have to go to post-conviction appeal. Right. And so uh, I take it that no other circuit has, obviously no other circuit has taken the same uh, approach, saying there must be on-point binding precedent. Uh, have any of them actually explicitly rejected the approach, or is it just not come up in these other? You know, I don't, I, I, I don't know if anyone's explicitly rejected it. Um, I do know, and I think I referred in the post to a couple of examples of other cases where mandamus was issued despite there not being a clear precedent previously, right? Yeah, so. Okay. Um, but, but, Bobby, there's something else weird happening. So, so the first problem with these military commission mandamus cases is the super high mandamus standard. Okay, so there's a doctrinal problem there. I think you've persuaded me. I, I, I'm pretty persuaded Which, that by the way, this makes no sense. doesn't mean that these guys win, right? No, it's right. Still, they absolutely it, – it may not be clear error. Right. But I don't think you should condition that on whether someone else has already had the occasion I, to say I mean, so. That has to, I mean, it, surely, right, if a trial judge – you know, came up with a novel reason for excluding the defendant categorically from his own trial, right? The right. There's got to be would. some extreme examples that that disprove the logic here. Quite so I'm, I'm totally with you. Okay. But you, you're bothered by something else entirely separate from entirely that. Entirely separate. So, so although I think it's related in the sense that I think the D.C. Circuit has felt pressure to nevertheless opine on the merits that their standard of review has precluded them from reaching. And you love this. No. no. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah. um, so in two of the three prior mandamus cases, um, in Inre Al-Nashiri 1 and in Inre Qatar, after saying, we have jurisdiction, you haven't met our high bar because this is a novel question, the Court of Appeals has gone on to say, but while we're here, let's tell everybody why we think that the petition actually has some merit. So why is that bad? I, this may be one where we're going to disagree. What's, what's so bad about so that? So here's the problem. So take Nishiri 1. So in Nishiri 1, the question was whether um, the CMCR's military judges, right, who had been assigned to the Court of Military Commission Review by the Secretary of Defense, whether their um, service on the CMCR required a nomination by the president and confirmation by the Senate because they were principal officers under the Supreme Court's Appointments Clause jurisprudence. So the court appeal says, that's a novel question. Um, we don't answer novel questions in mandamus. 
And then it goes on to say, but it's an interesting question. Um, and, if, and, and, you know, the political branches could make this question go away if they just nominated all of the judges to the CMCR. And then, lo that's, and behold. So that's exactly what happened. But here's the problem, right? There's now litigation that I'm involved in, full disclosure, right? I am not an objective observer here. I am biased. There's now litigation about whether um, by appointing these guys to the CMCR as opposed to assigning them, the political branches thereby violated the statute that bans military officers from holding civil offices that require an appointment by the president. And one of the government's arguments is, oh, no, 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 no. They weren't actually appointed. They were just assigned. Right? So because the D.C. Circuit only suggested that the government take this step and did not mandate that the government take this step, the government was able to have its cake and eat it too by both doing the thing the D.C. Circuit suggested them do and turning around and arguing they didn't have to. Hmm. Right. And that there's no legal consequence to the fact that they did this thing. So I, it seems to me that, I mean, that, you know, it sounds like a mess, but it also just sounds like one of the many messes that arise. I think, you know, the, the example that looms largest in my mind is always the Supreme Court's 2008 decision in Boumediene where they, you know, re- reach a clear holding on whether habeas extends to the Gitmo detainees and kind of gesture towards some of what that might follow, but then kind of leave it all open. Everyone else can figure it out. And, and it creates so much work for everyone else because they don't really follow through enough. Um, that comes up a bunch. So why should we be concerned? I take it you have a, you have a, you see this as part of a larger pattern and that's really why it's bothering you as opposed to the consequences for that one particular case. Yes. Yeah, so I wrote an essay that nobody read um, in 2011 <laughs> called The Passive Aggressive Virtues. Love that title. That's yeah. a good title. So, so I should be, I should be, I should be clear. I'm actually not the first person to come up with that title. Um, our mutual friend, Mark Graber at the University of Maryland ah. had a paper um, a few years before, um, about Cohen's versus Virginia and the passive aggressive virtues. Well, good, good for Mark. Smart but it, was, it was good inspiration. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, but so the, the thesis of that paper was sincerest form of flattery, indeed, stealing someone's title. Um, <laughs> so, so the thesis of that paper was basically that the Supreme Court's post 9/11 jurisprudence in the detainee cases, which we've talked about before, mm-hmm. reflected this odd approach where the court was super aggressive in asserting its authority to decide these cases and then super passive about actually saying anything on the merits. Which makes a ton of sense if what you want to do is assert your own importance in the matter and kind of protect your turf, but you don't want to commit yourself to something that may blow up on you later. Exactly right. No, that's And I think it's a perfectly fair description. It sounds of like my, Congress. Indeed, but these are not the same institutions, right? And so <laughs> one of the things I argued in, the, in that essay um, was that in the process, right, the court sends this weird mixed message where the executive branch seems to think that maybe it's okay doing what it's doing because even though it's subject to review, the court's not slapping them down, right? And so basically I argue that the court should put up or shut up, right? That if you're going to assert this authority, you have an obligation to actually reach the merits of these cases. And so you see what's going on in the Milcom's appellate uh, pattern as being related to that. And and here's why. I mean, I think there's one last piece that hopefully will get folks from from point A to point Z, right? Um, The last piece is because if these questions are not resolved in the military commissions today, they're not gonna be resolved for years. Right. Um, right, because the only other, unlike other litigation contexts where there are different ways to find a, to force the courts to answer, say, a Fourth Amendment question in a criminal case, right, or, you know, an administrative law question, here it's mandamus or post-conviction appeal. And at the pace the military commissions are moving, the post-conviction appeals in the 9-11 case, you know, we're both going to be a lot older and grayer than we already are. So you're saying we have this for our career. And, and you know, I mean, it's, it's a perfectly lovely career. But I think by episode 437 of this podcast, people <laughs> are going to be tired of hearing us talking about this. Oh, they're going um, to oh, be tired a lot sooner so, than that. So, but I, just, right, but I mean, just forget, you don't have to agree with me on the merits or disagree with me on the merits. Like, I just, I have this strong view that we would all be better served if these merits questions were decided sooner rather than later so that we can know going forward what the commissions can and can't do as opposed to put, you know, kicking the can down the road. Well, in, it's clear to anyone who's heard our prior episodes talking about military commission issues, I think, that I'm ent- entirely on board with that view in the military commissions context. I think that the, the amount of delay that's occasioned by these sorts of maneuverings is really unhealthy and adds to the overall problems of the system. I don't think I'm not as persuaded yeah. that it's a problem with respect to the Gitmo habeas cases, which, you know, they've all churned through their first yeah. rounds. Uh, no, I think, right. you know, I, think, I think that here, it's, it's, the problem is uniquely exacerbated here yeah. because of the time lag 
between the ability of the DC Circuit to decide these issues now and the enormous resources that would be consumed if 10 years from now, the DC Circuit says, oh, wait, on that interlocutory appeal yep. way back then, yep, yep, Judge yep. Silliman totally should have recused. Right. And I, and I will underscore here that, in my view, this is definitely, I don't know if bipartisan is the right word, but a nonpartisan non -partisan issue, but it, it doesn't cut any one way or the other on the liberty versus security no. spectrum either. We just need to know what the rules are for this uh, decade and a half old system, whether or not it's going to go forward. That, I mean, that's and that's that's my real bottom line here. And by the way, just because I like to bring breaking news to the podcast. Oh, what have you got? I'm, the DC Circuit. But who's been fired now? No, no, this is actually relevant <laughs> breaking news. Oh, okay. This will not be on your legal Twitter. news. This oh. is legal news. The DC Circuit yeah. has just issued an order that in in, in Ray Muhammad that the party should be prepared to discuss at oral argument rule for military commission 902b3 and judge Silliman's statements in the world today um in other words they're on the ball so wait unpack that because what's the rule what were what's the statement in question so rule 902b3 um sets out the specific grounds for disqualification of a military judge ah. um and here's the if you'll forgive me i'm going to quote the the relevant language where the military judge has been or will be a witness in the same case? No. Is the accuser? No. Has forwarded charges in the case with the personal recommendations to disposition? No. Or, except in the performance of duties as military judge in a previous trial of the same or related case, has expressed an opinion concerning the guilt or innocence of the accused. Hmm. So that's the rule. Now, as for the relevant um, World Today interview that they're quoting, uh, I, I, I must confess that I have not memorized the entire record in this case. Um, but, you know, Judge Silliman gave an interview in 2010 um, where he said some pretty, how do I say, inflammatory stuff about how the Gailani case should have gone um, and about the, in his view, potential guilt of the 9-11 defendants. I, I don't know what this means, Bobby, other than that um, it looks like the D.C. Circuit is loaded for bear. It certainly sounds like they're going to focus in on what sounds like a very relevant question, and it will become sort of a, how do you interpret the facts? Uh, what was it exactly he said? And I don't, I don't know what he exactly said. Um, I, I should disclose, of course, that I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Scott Silliman. Actually, Steve, first time when I got into teaching, Scott, who was at Duke, was teaching at Wake Forest, which was where I had my first job, and he was teaching national security law. And he was really kind and generous to me. And I audited his class, kind of took notes on how it was done. And he yeah. sort of shepherded me into the field. So I hope this works out well. Um, I don't know about the particulars Listen, of what I, was said. I, and I want to be clear. I'm not taking a strong position on, on the matter. My point is just that this is another sort of flashpoint in a conversation that has nothing to do with Judge Silliman and has everything to do with the aversion on the part of the D.C. Circuit to settling questions about the military yeah. commissions that – Honestly, they're not going to be able to avoid forever. Well, okay, so it sounds like based on this breaking uh, last-minute directive. Breaking order. Breaking order. <laughs> sounds like they're planning to at least be prepared to go to the merits. Well, and so, and so this is why. So I wrote in my post on Monday that the one reason why tomorrow's case could be an interesting departure from the from the other military commission mandamus cases is because recusal of a judge. Yeah, that's pretty big. Is it covers everything. But also it's a matter on which there's plenty of precedent. Yeah, yeah. And so even on the D.C. Circuit's, in my view, inappropriately strict standard for mandamus, this is not, unlike the other issues in the military commissions, a matter on which there's no law. Right. So so prediction, they distinguish the three prior instances and say, uh, here's one where the precedent's clear. And then they either think the prior statements by Scott were, were you know, disqualifying here or not. And who knows? And um, then they move on. And they haven't necessarily gotten rid of the rule that's, that's causing you right. such grief. And so, and so the rule that's causing me grief is actually one of the, f I think, four questions presented in the cert petition in Nishiri 2. Um, right. Nashiri 2 is the case where he's trying to litigate before his trial the legality of the commission asserting jurisdiction over pre-9-11 offenses. That's our petitions before the Supreme Court. The government's opposition is now due August 31st. And one of the technical questions presented is whether the D.C. Circuit's burden for mandamus is too high. Is it possible that in, in the case being argued tomorrow in the D.C. Circuit that what they'll ultimately do is decide to wait to see how the Supreme Court acts or doesn't act on that question presented? Maybe, although if as you 
if if they say so if if they're if the panel's willing to conclude even under their standard right then they should go ahead and reach the merits right that 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 even under the standard judge Silliman ought to have recused right and otherwise though maybe they should sit on this Indeed. We'll see. which will give uh, yet another extension to uh, the underlying case right this is just I I I, I don't know Madeline's going to be through college before the the military commission case Good is heavens. over all right well right, we, we've been now into death. that's enough military commission nerdistry all right let's let's switch to some LOAC nerdistry and by the way how do you like that that breaking DC Circuit news? That was actually that was pretty impressive. I was sure somebody was about to be fired, or it was maybe a Jeff Sessions story. It's only two fifty Central. And we got plenty of time the, left. The firings are usually around like four thirty or five. <laughs> That's when the beatings are too. All right. Um, I want to talk about this uh, event that the Strauss Center uh, co-sponsored that took place in Italy last week. This is the fifth year in a row that we've been uh, a co-sponsor of what we call the Transatlantic uh, Workshop on International Law and Armed Conflict. Basically, it's an it's an off the record. Well, not off the record. It's a Chatham House rule gathering of. Can, no- can remind our, our our less our less debate debatey people. Chatham House rule yeah. means you do not attribute what was said to. You don't talk about what was said. So um, and, and, in, and it's in relation to particular people. Right. You don't identify. You don't, you don't right. associate any comments with particular Right. And now I'm not going to talk about particular mm-hmm. comments in, at all. I'm going to sketch in more, more general terms. Sort of these are, these are the topics that were on the agenda. Um, I will say this. It's, it's by design. First, the other co-sponsors. It's the Strauss Center here at UT, um, the International Committee of the Red Cross, um, the uh, South Texas College of Law, and the one and only Jeff Korn, um, who's been my partner in crime on this event for, for many, many years, um, and Oxford with uh, our, our other partner in crime, crime the wonderful Dapo Akande, uh, and including Oxford's Institute for Ethics, Law, and Armed Conflict. And in this case, we were in Florence, Italy, at the home of the European University Institute. And if you've never been there, wow. It is a collection of, of villas up on the hills outside of Florence. It's it's exactly what you're picturing. Now, now while you were there, did you get a chance to have a bistecca alla Fiorentina? I did. Or, well, actually, no, because Marty, no? Marty's going to bust me on this. Marty Lederman and I, when we got to town, went to some uh, hole-in-the-wall place that he had found that was wonderful and amazing. He had it. I observed it. I had some kind of amazing pasta. Um, and Steve's, look, you know, for those not in the room with us, Steve's looking at me like I'm a complete idiot. But come on. I, I was there for the pasta. Anyways, <laughs> Steve's still staring daggers at me. Karen and I did our honeymoon in, in Rome, Florence, and Milan. And the Bisteca. The, and, and the Bisteca of Fiorentina is still high on the list yeah. of things we remember about the honeymoon. We did, we did have, I will say, we did have, as one of the conference dinners, there were uh, – um, already sliced what I think had begun as a bisteca a la Florentina. So I think I maybe did have it. It was good. Everything I ate was good. It was Italy. Come on. Yeah. So um, anyways, the, the gatherings format is to get a bunch of North American and European and, and also usually at least one Israeli uh, experts in the law of armed conflict, some from academia, some from military, some from government non-military, some from NGOs, and get everyone around a, uh, a table and uh, – about 30 to 40 people with about two hours per topic. And then with the benefit of some discussion drafts or some presentations, just pick a current topic of significance and then begin debating and ventilating the issue. And it was really an education. Um, you know, I certainly was was a weak link in the room in terms of expertise in the law of armed conflict. Oh, shut up. No, no, it's true. This was a really, really serious crowd. Um, and there were some of the issues, and I'm going to identify what the general issues were, that I confess, at first, I thought, oh, this is going to be pretty painful to sit through, perhaps. And in every time, of course, once the real experts start tearing into them, you realize, well, this, this really matters. Uh, case in point, uh, one of the sessions took up Common Article 1 to the, to the 1949 Geneva Conventions. Common Article 1 and the language that requires uh, high contracting parties to uh, respect and ensure respect that's a quote, to ins- respect and ensure respect to, uh, to the conventions. And you would think there's only so far you could go with that particular language. Um, the ICRC has recently published a revised set of commentaries. They're, they're doing this one by one, moving through the treaties. And the commentary on, on Common Article 1 puts a pretty, pretty heavy amount of weight on what follows from the obligation to ensure respect, especially when it comes to not just controlling what your own forces do, but controlling what partnered forces or supported forces. And just think of think of American uh, intelligence support to Saudi and, and, and their Gulf allies. Um, 
and their air operations in Yemen. Think about uh, all sorts of states supporting uh, non-state armed groups on the ground in the Syria conflict. And you can imagine all the endless ways in which the stronger you make the obligation to ensure respect and the more you make it extend beyond you to those that you're in some way or fashion assisting as they participate in armed conflict, uh, the more potential legal friction you, the, the, the first instance government, are going to have. So we had a wonderful discussion of that. That is an issue to pay close attention to, uh, especially if you're interested in partnered operations, advise, train, and assist missions, and the like. Um, next, we went into Common Article 2 and these sort of conflict categorization questions that everybody's familiar with. Is this, is this an international armed conflict? Is it a non-international armed conflict? Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the challenge of categorization and, indeed, number of conflicts when you've got a situation such as the one unfolding in Syria where um, you have a variety of different actors all aligned against one another in different ways. Um, we had a session on Common Article 3 in the NIAC setting. We had a session on uh, computer network operations or cyber attack in the context of armed conflict. There was a discussion of um, the situation of the wounded and sick who are still on the battlefield, in particular reference to the following question. Uh, obviously, when it comes to the proportionality analysis, when you're considering an attack, what you're certainly considering is uh, anticipated civilian casualties that you think might follow from the attack on the proper military objective. Well, what if your anticipated attack on a proper military objective is also anticipated to hit wounded and sick who no longer pose a threat in the battlefield? Lots of interesting questions there. Do you, do you just assimilate them to civilian status and add them to the proportionality balancing, or, or are they different from civilians that way? Really interesting and important issue. Um, and then we concluded uh, by exploring the recent Oxford guidance uh, having to do with humanitarian relief, which, as we all know, is a recurring issue in conflicts and has been a big issue in Syria. Lots of cool issues there. So um, the Strauss Center doesn't just support this podcast. We also <laughs> make sure that these dialogues are taking place. And uh, in, 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 in horrible, terrible places horrible to spend looking. a couple days. You may be wondering, like, well, where else have you done this if this is the fifth one? All four prior ones were in Oxford. Uh, which was great. Love that. Uh, I don't know where yet. Another horrible place to spend some time. Don't know where yet, where we'll be By next the way, year. hi. Hey. I'm your co-podcast host and yeah. your colleague. Oh, and, and a where could this be going? Where, where could this be going? Just, just wondering, where did my invitation get lost? You just want to know where it's going to be next year. I, I could go. I, I mean, it's not, as long as it's not Austin, I'm in. <laughs> well, just in this time of year, you mean. Yeah. If we can do it uh, in another time of year, what better place could there be? That's fine, but that just means going to work. That's true. All right. So that's that's what I was up to last week. Let's uh, let's pivot back to what the the president's been up to. What hasn't the president been up to? That's true. Well, he's apparently been up to he's, some sh- he's, he's been shuffling he's, the deck. He's been shuffling the deck. He's been dictating statements to his son. Apparently. Um, by the way, can I just point out just just before we lose the thread on we talked um, about Jeff Sessions in some detail last week, right? And I just want to point out the he's weathering the storm, isn't he? He's weathering the storm perfectly well. No one has yet said a word about that Washington Post story uh, and the report that Kislyak had reported back to his superiors. Bobby, that strikes me as the kind of national security leak that, had it not been orchestrated by the White House, would have been at the top of their hit list. So, yeah, I think I think a couple of things about that. One, I think this that is in, my paranoia. I think radar. there's so much interest in not having Sessions step down and be replaced by someone who would then shut down the investigation that that has helped tamp down interest in pressing that story on its face from as the a critics, poss- from the critics of the administration, right? And and then from the White House perspective, your theory last week was, well, this is probably a White House leak that was designed to pressure Sessions, maybe even uh, browbeat him into or embarrass him into resigning. Right. Um, and they're not they're not pressing that they seem one. To, right they seem to be abandoning that for, for the moment no no i think it looks a lot like the level of pushback has uh, has been sufficient especially the senate pushback with so so right so so lindsey graham said it was something like it would be over my dead body or right. something you got all sorts of members of the senate basically saying like you can't do this right. to one of our own you do what you want to the mooch do what you want to mike flynn but you brought in one of us who was the first one to endorse you he's been loyal to your team he's pursuing your policies except on this one thing don't you dare do it. And they've backed off. Right. Um, we should say a quick word before we turn to the staffing questions about President Trump's uh, transgender ban 
um, right, which obviously has some national security undertones insofar as it affects the military. Oh, yeah. Talk about civ-mil relations issues. Although apparently that's a, that's a gov-mil relation question because apparently DOD didn't know it was coming. No, right. There's like there's a, there's a bunch of interesting backstory on that. We don't want to go too far into the weeds no, no, on no, but this. There, but, but there's a larger point, and Jack Goldsmith wrote a great post for Lawfare about this, about the ununitary executive and how oh, yeah. we're increasingly, I think, going to see flashpoints where the president – at least appears to commit to something publicly that then just doesn't get pursued by the relevant agency. Well, so this has happened. This has happened multiple times, never as as visibly and as dramatically as this, I think. But um, there's a reason why in the traditional White House structure, there's so much process management about how decisions are queued up to the president and then how they're rolled out and how it's authenticated and implemented and how you get you get confirmation of compliance with your subordinates in the executive branch in the back end. And it's no surprise at all that if what you do instead is have a completely off-the-cuff tweet that's right. in response to a budgetary issue that had come up in that the House. Under, that you didn't understand. Right. When you when you have that happen and when it's it's this potentially uh, out of step with what with the direction DOD otherwise was heading, well, no surprise at all that you find that there's incredible friction in getting it implemented. I will say there's there's been not one whisper of indication that the president or anyone else around him actually has cared that it doesn't seem to be rolling forward in terms of implementation. But that's not going to last. At a certain point, the members who are affected by this need to know, are are they out or are they not out? And the other thing I was going to say, well, (laughs) interesting choice of words there. Um, Yeah, indeed. (laughs) And and, and the last point I was making about this. So the other thing about that, the, the, the Monday morning transgender tweet storm, there was, I think, about nine and a half minutes between the first tweet and the second Right, where right, par- he left it lingering with a, with an ellipsis, suggesting where you could. I thought it was going to be about like you know we're going to threaten military action. Maybe we just took some military right. action. Um, this is not healthy. Like this is this is not this is not the way to run a railroad. Well, you're you know talk about you know I love to say overdetermined. I know. This, podcast. Right. this but, is truly overdetermined. But, but speaking of unhealthy, so so perhaps to remedy some of the unhealthiness, right, and all of the deck shuffling, one of the moves the president made that I think you and I both probably are not averse to is moving uh, former Marine Corps General John Kelly from Secretary of Homeland Security to White House Chief of Staff. I love Kelly as a Chief of Staff, right? <laughs> that's a, that's a, somebody the, – the Chief of Staff has to be the disciplinarian yep. in this process we were just describing. And the traffic cop. And the traffic cop. And it clearly – you need someone like John Kelly. Then it, It's not because he was a military man. You, you can be a it's civilian with the same qualities of, of discipline. Um, but this is good for bringing some order to the White House. Now, whether whether you're whether one is happier with the White House being a mess or orderly is a different question. That's right. So, so, so I would never use the word love and John Kelly in the same sentence. Um, I, you know, I have I have less I think fond memories, especially of his tenure as um, the commander of I guess what CENTCOM when one of his responsibilities was Gitmo, um, and he was at least indirectly, if not directly, responsible for some of the harsher. Um, policy changes that went into effect in 2011 and 2012 that provoked some of the f- hunger strikes and all that messy litigation. But, you know, I digress. That, that That's a different time. It definitely, certainly a different topic. Um, now, the, but I was kind of hedging my remark earlier because, of course, this isn't great for DHS. Well, so there's also the DHS question. But, but actually, I thought, I mean, part of why I thought it would be interesting to talk about on the podcast is it also has reinvigorated at least some questions about whether it's good in the abstract sense, to have so many military people in such high civilian government positions. You know, this is obviously a longstanding civ-mil relations topic, but Bobby, there's actually some law here that might be worth discussing. There is. Now, before we get to the law, I just want to say on the civ-mil issue, of course, whether the net amount of military personnel in the senior positions of the Trump administration rises or falls here depends entirely on who the next Secretary of Homeland Security is. If all we've done is move John Kelly from one place to the other, it won't won't change. Um, I Predictions on who might be the next secretary? I'm thinking maybe Mike McCall, who is indeed uh, one of our own local congressmen. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I really have no idea. There, there had been, you know, because D.C. reporters love sort of twisting themselves into knots. There had been this crazy theory running around last week that <laughs> President Trump was going to appoint Jeff Sessions as the acting secretary right, of right, Homeland that, Security. Yeah. The Vacancies Reform Act and all this other right, stuff. Right, was right. Gonna... That was an interesting hypothetical, but there's, that seems to have been pretty clearly... So, so I, I mean, there's an interesting question for the Trump administration, right, about whether they want another big, high-profile confirmation hearing right now or whether they'd just rather be very happy with the deputy um, or with some other acting secretary for the next seven months. You know, when, when you think about situations like a 
keeping the, the temperature down in Congress, that suggests going to somebody from Congress, if you can. McCall's yeah, a natural. That's a good point. You only want to do that if you've got a safe seat. I yep. think it's a safe seat. So maybe well, that's what will happen. Who, who knows what seats are safe in twenty? But there's law here. Tell me about the law. So the law is not that interesting. Um, <laughs> no. I, but stay tuned for the Game of Thrones discussion, which is coming up shortly. So let me do the law really quickly. So believe it or not, there actually are a bunch of statutes that are quite specifically on point about what kinds of offices can be held by either current or former service members. Um, most of these statutes have their origins, Bobby, in this interesting period right after the Civil War, when there was a real concern in Congress that the you know, Civil War enlarged army um, was discharging all these people into Washington to take over basically jobs in the civilian government mm. and was going to start running the civilian government. Was, was this more of a Civ Mill story about, you know, the standing army taking over? Or was this more of a uh, turf protecting, uh, hey, all these guys are taking our jobs? So, you know, there wasn't that big of a civil service at the time. Yeah. So I really think it was, I mean, I've actually, I've gone back and read a lot of the floor debates um, uh, from this time period. And at least if you take the members of Congress seriously, it was Civ Mill. Um, mm. you know, most of the comments are about keeping the civilian government paramount to the military, mm -hmm. not giving the military all this authority over, over you know, the Department of Education, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of State, right? Uh, this, no education back then, I guess, but this- uh, Actually, it was, founded, it was founded during the Civil War. It was? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, okay, I want to hear more about that later. But was this under Johnson? Was this partly a no, matter? No, it's, it's Grant. This is an, okay, Grant. So you've got a president who's you know the commanding general was the commanding general of the Union Army. Yeah. So that obviously exacerbates things. But he had a he had a better relationship with his Congress. Yeah, than no, had. I, I think it was more just. I mean, it was middle of Reconstruction, right? Congress mm -hmm. is starting to get a little tired of the militarization of law enforcement, yeah. right? So posse comitatus comes along a few years later. Um, there actually there are a number of bills that the 41st Congress in particular, the Congress that sat from 1869 to 1871, mm -hmm. you know, introduces on the subject, the most important of which is the one that's still in force today. Um, it's 10 USC section 973B. I, I often refer to it as the civil office ban. Okay. Um, and it's in, in its initial form, it actually prohibited all active duty military officers from holding any civil office in federal or state government, period. Federal or state. Or state. That's incredible. You couldn't be elected to, to office if you were a military yeah. officer. So you had to resign your commission if you wanted to be in, in a And indeed, office. the statute provided that if you accepted the civil office, you forfeit your commission. Very interesting. Um, so, But that's been whittled down over time, I think. So it's been whittled down a bit. So now it's not any civil office. It's civil offices that require an election, civil offices that require nomination by the president and appointment by the Senate, or a bunch of random civil offices listed in like six provisions of Title V of the US Code. Um, to make a long story short, though, all of the cabinet, right? So um, you, there is currently a legal prohibition on a active duty military officer serving as um, Secretary of Defense, right? Secretary of, course, of yeah. State, Secretary of Agriculture, yep. Attorney General. Yeah. So the, cab the, way, the cabinet must be civilian and of course the president as well. And for the Secretary of Defense, folks will remember this from earlier this year, right? Mm -hmm. There's actually yep. a special additional requirement. Yeah, there's a cooling off period. Seven years. Except when they want to waive it as they did for Jim Mattis. So these are all statutes. I mean, right, George I mean, Marshall. I mean, the point, right. I want to be clear here. These are, these are all statutes. Um, right? These are mm -hmm. not like constitutional provisions. Right. No, these are all these are all efforts through statute to implement a vision of separation of keeping the civilian distinct from the military. By the way, just before I before I get too far off field, um, I was thinking of the Department of Agriculture. Education ah. was founded in 1979. Okay, that's what I thought. So it used okay. to be part of HEW, Health Education. And ah, got it, got it. All right, okay. But neither here nor there. Um, so there are all these statutes. The 973B, the civil office ban, is one of them. 10 USC 113A is the one that limits the Secretary of Defense. Um, and these statutes basically operate to limit what kinds of positions active duty officers can hold. We'll talk at some point in the future about how this applies, how how this statute is what's do, causing the mischief in the military commissions that's behind my Supreme Court cases. I don't want to bore people today. Okay, we'll come back to that. Um, but I, I think it's worth noting, though, that like there's an interesting... The statutes are doing a lot of work that I think people don't appreciate, right? That, that yes, John Kelly is a retired general in a senior position. Yes, you know, Jim Mattis is a retired general in a senior position, um, but they're retired, right? Um, the only active duty officer in a senior position is H.R. McMaster. Which is not one of the forbidden positions. And, not one of the, and National Security Advisor is one of the few positions at that level of government where you can be an active duty military officer. Now, we should say, because of a quirky other statute, 
Um, McMaster actually had to get reconfirmed by the Senate to keep his third star. Right. Otherwise, because he was a three star. Right. But he was a three star tied to his prior billet. Um, and so he was going to revert in rank to major general two star. Um, so there was a weird, quirky thing there, but it wasn't about his eligibility to hold the office. Right, and it wasn't really a sensitive civ mill issue. So do, is your position that things, that the, the selections of personnel for the Trump administration suggest we need further tweaks to this framework, or that, no, it's people, as far as the framework goes, we've got a good system, and you may be seeing some of the effects in that you don't have more military. Mm-hmm. So so I, I, let me say two things. I think Nothing that's happened at the senior echelons of the Trump administration have given me pause, right, about civil relations. Um, I think the statutes in that context are being followed and applied the way they ought to be. You know, I think if I had been in Congress, I might not have voted for the Mattis exception bill. Um, on civil grounds, but it is within Congress's prerogative to knowingly waive the seven-year right. cooling-off period. Clearly, yeah. But, but um, I want to lay down a marker because I think that those statutes and the interpretations of them that are doing all of this work behind the scenes to keep these lines of authority separate are actually being challenged in the you know far less noted litigation I'm involved in in the military commissions, um, and so part of why I think the Super technical cases I'm involved in are actually important beyond the okay. super technical cases I'm involved in. It's because it's about these same statutes and it's about interpretations of them that if they were upheld would make the statutes far less effective in keeping these lines protected. That's interesting. Well, there's there's no question that, that this is an important legal angle that's easily overlooked because it's kind of down in the weeds, yet it, it helps define the terms of what's permissible for these appointments. And that's the thing. And so, and so to me, like all the stuff about Kelly and Madison McMaster – is just proof of why these statutes matter. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me too. Right, and why and why in the litigation I'm involved in, it actually is a real problem that, for example, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces has read the civil office ban to flip over, um, to not actually require the military officer to step down, um, and to not necessarily prevent them from continuing their duties in the military. Well, you're making a really good case that a, uh, a case that otherwise sounds pretty boring to me actually might be worth paying attention hey to. Now. So good job there. You're, I'm agreeing with you all too much, and so we should switch to Game of Thrones so we but, can find something to disagree but about. But before I do, can I rant for one second? Oh, well, yeah. Because while we're, talking about, while we're talking about flag officers, can we please stop calling people who aren't flag officers generals? Do you mean like... The Attorney General. Yeah, so, so dear <laughs> listeners, bear with me on this, on this brief moment of pedantry. Um, the Attorney General, not a general, right? In the, the, in the title Attorney General, general is an adjective. Adjective. Not right. a noun. Not a noun, yes. Right? The Solicitor General, not a general. The Comptroller General, not a general. Surgeon General. The Surgeon General by statute is a Vice Admiral. Oh, so he's a flag officer. 42 U.S.C. Section 205 in the Public Health Service of the United well, States. I was waiting the, for that one. Oh, you, you, I walked right into your trap. <laughs> that was incredible. But there's, that was not know, scripted. George Carlin has this fantastic routine about flying on airplanes. Are you about to cuss a whole bunch? I'm really not. This is not the seven <laughs> words you can't say on television. Um, no, the, the airplane routine, flying on the airlines. If you haven't seen this George Carlin routine, please YouTube it. It is, it is timeless. It is still great. And one of his lines is, you know, Captain... Who made this man a captain? <laughs> Tell the captain that Air Marshal Carlin would like to speak with him. Air Marshal Carlin. But, of course, yeah, he, he, you are a captain when you're the head of a vessel in See, international. See, you and your plot holes. I, yeah. I agree with you. My point is just that, like, there's this but culture. But it's, it's not a military rank. But there's this culture of false, like, you know, title titles snobbiness. Right, right, right. Um, well, this, I, I do think there's a, there's a species. It's not about stolen valor, but it's on the spectrum of suggesting or tapping into 100%. the prestige of the military by using a title that that in that context when used at you know general vladic that implies something about right. your status and your connection to the military and you just shouldn't do that and when so, talking so, about civilian right. officers so dear supreme court stop calling them general dear members of congress stop calling them general they are not generals and if they were it would be illegal i agree okay <laughs> now Game of Thrones. Speaking Game of, of Thrones. Speaking the, of generals. For those who are not caught up, now not seen so, episode so three. If you haven't seen episode three, now's the time to, to, to sign off. Three, two, one. Okay, spoil. Go. What'd you think? I, you know, 
Folks who have been listening the last couple of weeks are, are are surely aware that I was not super enthusiastic about the first two episodes. Bobby, I thought this week was much more what I was waiting for. Like, Why? What, what was it that did it for you? Because I thought it was better, yeah, more so, the same a little so bit. So there were two features of this week's episode that I loved. The first was all of the Tyrion and Jon back and forth, right? I mean, Tyrion's they, dialogue was a little bit closer to what it used to be. I've been complaining for a long time yeah. that his dialogue over the past year and a half or so has, has fallen off the wagon completely, and, and it's, it was a little wittier. I like and, and, and the Tyrion, like, resurrecting the Tyrion-John dynamic really all the way back from, like, the first season yeah. is a really cool move, and it's great to see. And, you know, they clearly like and respect each other, Oh yeah, no, it's fun to see. That, I completely agree with that. I, that was one of the things I did like about and it. And that was a good chunk of the episode. Yeah. Um, and then second, the long sort of Tyrion-narrated scene toward the end Right, where Tyrion first holds out, you know, what they had expected the Lannisters to do, and then he drops the bomb about the trap he sprung from the sewers, and then we discover that in fact, you yes. know, Cersei and Jaime outfoxed Tyrion. Yes. Right. Like that just struck me as as powerful, powerful and beautifully done, and great storytelling in a way that we hadn't seen in the first two. It episodes. was a ni- it was a nice surprise, um, and it leads to a point I want to make about how usually Tyrion is talked about as if he's this great strategic genius. I don't see any evidence of this whatsoever. I don't see any strategic thinking going on there at all on their whole team. What I see is a guy who's actually shown um, some a real instinct for asymmetric tactics, mm-hmm. or you might say operational uh, uh, art, Insofar as you know, he, he came up with the, the Greek fire attack yeah. on, on uh, Davos's navy. Wildfire. And wildfire. Yeah, well, but it's Greek fire, right? I know. Um, and, uh, and, and then this sewer technique. So he, he's got a nose, by, by dint of his experience and inclination, he's got a nose for, for tactical surprise uh, or operational surprise. But when you look at how that episode unfolds, um, what is it that strategically is critical for the Cersei side? Money gold. And, and gold, gold and the debt they owe and, and where is a, a and, apparently and largely come, undefended right. mountain say, of say, gold? How come the Tyrells can't pay for a better army? Yeah, where are the mercenaries for their part? Get the, the, the Seventh Sons or whatever they were called over there. There's, there's pretty obviously uh, a temptation there. It shouldn't have been hard to predict that that's, of course, where the Lannister forces might go as quickly as they could to right. pick off your enemies, especially yeah. Especially once you know that they they clearly have better intelligence than you do because they found your fleet, destroyed it, <laughs> and then well, the, the, through so, some sort wait, of wormhole, okay, okay, so sailed this, it all okay. the way around to the far okay, side. Okay, so it. this goes back to so so who gave Euron ship right warp drive? Yeah, because, exactly. I mean, no, it was ridiculous. So so I, you know I, I clearly right the the engineers on Game of Thrones have solved the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. I think they they've solved the plot principle, which is they just it's it's they don't uh, care about time. Just time doesn't matter, and in the convenience of the plot, we need to quickly put uh, Daenerys's army back on its heels because that will then position her to make certain other decisions. So I, th- I mean I think that's part of what's going on here, right? Is that the end yeah. of season six set up way too easily, yep. and so now they're sort of clawing back to make it actually in doubt as to what's going to happen um so i i will say i had my i, I thought what I, I made this this joke on twitter sunday night that no one appreciated um right, when, try me when baelish is talking about how in you have to picture in your mind every possible result for uh, every yeah. scenario so <laughs> i immediately multiverse. my brain immediately reverted to vulcan philosophy right infinite <laughs> diversity and obviously was it was it not there to begin with steve yeah well fair enough <laughs> um infinite diversity and infinite combinations um, How is that not what Baelish was talking about? Uh, he was talking multiverse. He was talking Bart Crouch, Dark Matter. You know, pick your your most recent version. And it Sansa is. wasn't buying. Uh, you know, I actually think she was totally buying. I think you're supposed to think that she is. You're supposed to think that she is distilling the yeah, the, 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 the fierceness of Cersei, the the cleverness and right. the strategy of Baelish, who is strategic, and and then the goodness of her father. So my two favorite one-liners of the week, and it's not the obvious ones. I did not actually think like Lady Olenna's last line. Was the great you know be all end all that a lot of folks online? No, but that was, was a sweet reveal, though. A sweet reveal. Um, and, and by the way, Lady Olenna turns out to be the answer to who's the major character who's going to die first. There you go. Thus, um, thus predictions wrong. Right. Um, so the two great lines I thought of the week were when um, Tyrion is trying to explain to Danny how Dragon Glass how Dragon Glass kills White Walkers. Right. He says it kills them. It, it destroys them. It 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 unsure about the nomenclature yeah that was great that was good <laughs> that was good and then when bran is reunited with um sansa <laughs> right and yeah. john comes up bran's like oh i have to talk to him 
Yeah, that's for that's some good foreshadowing. <laughs> By the way, Brand, they they've kind of taken him from scared wanderer exploring his powers to flat out weirdo. Oh, I mean, he's super weirdo. Like like, <laughs> like how, your, super inappropriate comment right, to your how sister. Can I, how can I prove to my sister that I see everything? Let me let me bring you back to the most like unfortunate. I, moment so I of think life. that I think that that's another example of them driving forward with the plot without adequate setup. They yeah. didn't transition that right. No, and 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 you know how come Brand can get to. Um, Winterfell faster than Arya can. I mean, like, there's a lot of, you know, yeah. the, the, the time-space continuum is increasingly yeah. coming into question. I, I, but the so, drama's not. No, it's not. There, the, it, That part is all right. I guess we're heading towards, uh, you know, sooner or later a battle at the Wall. A battle royale. It's bound to go very, very badly for the wildlings who Cause are... Because other, otherwise... What's season eight going to be about? No, right. They're clearly that's they're going to be a road bump, and it'll be all dramatic. Oh no, no! Clearly, one of the remaining four episodes of season seven is the Wildlings getting their butts yeah. absolutely kicked. And, at and as you know, I'm sea. super excited about the inevitable, hopefully, shows worth of zombie action that will go on in that uh, that particular episode. You're excited about, it, and I'm like, is yeah. Well, that's probably how our listeners feel right now. Should we turn them loose? Let's do it. So, you know, hopefully, we'll have more interesting national security news for you next week and if not at least there will be another episode of Game of Thrones and in the meantime we would really appreciate it if you would make a point if you do enjoy the show of telling other people about it encouraging them to uh, to subscribe get on iTunes give it a rating rate it wherever else you can follow Steve at at Steve underscore Vladek and love the underscore yeah love the underscore follow me at at Bobby Chesney, no underscore and follow uh, the podcast at, at NSL podcast yeah got, can we think of anything else to promote um yeah uh, Texas football. How long? Oh, tech, yeah, I'm excited. We'll get to that. That'll be a subject later on. You're excited? How, how could you not be excited about UT football? Because I read the newspapers and I've watched the last couple of seasons and I know how the story ends. I, I think you're, oh, man, have we got something to disagree about now. <laughs> All right, but how long, how long into this are we at this uh, point? One hour and 30 seconds. Oh, heavens. Let's stop right there. So we'll talk to you guys next week. Stay safe out there. Adios.